Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Dan Amender here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to section 4.1 of 2022. AHA, ACC, HFSA guidelines for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Texas Tech University medical student and Cardinals Academy intern, Dr. Adriana Maris. Answered by Baylor University cardiology fellow and Cardinals fit trialist, Dr. Shiva Patola. And then by expert faculty, Dr. Eldon Lewis. Dr. Lewis is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist, professor of medicine and chief of the division of cardiovascular medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Lewis, it is an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to, to be a part of this, and I really appreciate everyone's efforts in trying to better understand, not only better understand the hard failure guidelines from 2022, but also helping to educate the public. It's a pleasure to have you, Dr. Lewis. Our question is, Mr. Stevens is a 55-year-old man who presents with progressively worsening dyspnea on exertion for the past two weeks. He has associated paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, intermittent exertional chest pressure, and bilateral lower extremity edema. Otherwise, Mr. Stevens does not have any medical history and does not take any medications. Which of the following will be helpful for the diagnosis at this time? A. Detailed history and physical examination. B. Chest x-ray. C blood workup, including CBC, CMP, NT, ProBMP, D, 12-lead electrocardiogram, or E, all of the above. Shiva, based on the patient's presentation, what further workup would be helpful in investigating the possible etiology of heart failure? Well, Adriana, the correct answer is E, all of the above. Our patient, Mr. Stevens, presents with signs and symptoms of volume overload concerning for new onset heart failure. The history and physical exam remain the cornerstone of assessment of patients with heart failure. Not only is the HMP valuable for identifying the presence of heart failure, but also for providing clues about the degree of congestion, the underlying etiology, and potential alternative diagnoses. As such, Several components of the HMP have earned a class one indication in the guidelines. First, vital signs and evidence of clinical congestion should be assessed at each encounter to guide overall management, including adjustment of diuretics and other medications. Two, clinical factors indicating the presence of advanced disease should be assessed to allow for timely referral for consideration of advanced therapies. Three, 
A three-generation family history should be obtained or updated when assessing the cause of the cardiomyopathy to identify possible inherited disease. Four, a thorough HNP should direct diagnostic strategies to uncover specific causes that may warrant disease-specific management. And five, the HNP should also identify cardiac and non-cardiac disorders, lifestyle and behavioral factors, and social determinants of health that might cause or accelerate the development or progression of heart failure. Building on the HNP, laboratory evaluation provides important information about comorbidities, treatment options, potential causes or confounders of heart failure, as well as severity and prognosis. As such, for patients who are diagnosed with heart failure, the laboratory evaluation should include complete blood count, urinalysis, serum electrolytes, BUN, creatinine, glucose, lipid profile, liver and thyroid function tests, and iron studies to assess for reversible causes of heart failure and optimize management. If this initial laboratory evaluation reveals a potential underlying etiology, additional disease-specific laboratory testing should be performed to guide appropriate management. In patients presenting with dyspnea, such as Mr. Stevens, measurement of BNP or NT-proBNP is useful to support or exclude the diagnosis of heart failure. And in those with chronic heart failure, measurement of BNP or NT-proBNP levels are recommended for risk stratification. In addition to blood work, electrocardiography is part of the routine evaluation of a patient with heart failure and provides important information on rhythm, heart rate, QRS morphology and duration, as well as potential etiology and prognosis of heart failure. So for all patients with heart failure, a 12-lead ECG should be performed at the initial encounter to optimize management and can be repeated when clinically indicated. Last, but most certainly not least, we move to imaging, which is essential in the diagnosis and management of heart failure. In patients with suspected or new-onset heart failure, or those presenting with acute decompensated heart failure, a chest X-ray should be performed to assess heart size, pulmonary congestion, and potential alternative causes of symptoms. Additionally, in those with suspected or newly diagnosed heart failure, transthoracic echocardiography should be performed during the initial evaluation to assess cardiac structure and function. And when echocardiography is inadequate, alternative imaging such as cardiac MRI, cardiac CT, or radionuclide imaging is recommended for assessment of LVEF. Routine repeat assessment of LV function is not recommended in the absence of a clinical status change, treatment interventions that might have had a significant impact on cardiac function, or candidacy for invasive procedures or device therapy. The main takeaway from this question is that in patients who present with signs and symptoms of volume overload concerning for new-onset heart failure, it is essential to rule out non-cardiac causes and assess for specific underlying causes of heart failure by obtaining a detailed history and physical examination. Once the heart failure diagnosis is established, further workup with laboratory testing, ECG, and non-invasive cardiac imaging is warranted to investigate the etiology of heart failure and guide further management. Special attention should be given to detection of signs and symptoms suggesting an advanced stage of disease. Dr. Lewis, what are your thoughts on this clinical scenario? Well, thank you very much. I think that was a very good overview. And, and I would say when, when I see a patient who presents with new onset heart failure, one of the things that I try to understand is the etiology. The etiology is so important 
because it can shed light into the natural history, kind of the expectations for the patient, and also potential therapies that can be specific to that particular diagnosis. The other thought that I have, and I actually talk specifically with my patients about this, is instead of classifying it in the broad categories of ischemic and non-ischemic, I would actually think of about it as, is there some chance for improvement in the ejection fraction if they have a reduced ejection fraction or not? So is it reversible or not? As you know, with the new guidelines, they've kind of changed the nomenclature a little bit. And instead of saying recovered or in remission, they're saying improved. And the, the reason that this is important is, once again, the classification. If I have an ejection fraction of 55%, but I started with an ejection fraction of 30%, I don't want to confuse those patients with patients who've always had an ejection fraction that was preserved. Because the thought process, the management, and even long-term potential withdrawal of medications all will be impacted by that. So for instance, if someone has improved ejection fractions, we know from several studies that you really don't want to stop these GDMT or guideline-directed medical therapy because there's a high probability that the ejection fraction can be reduced again. And the concern in those clinical trials was that the ejection fraction is less likely to improve again if it goes down a second time. So I want to know if it's reversible. And then also, I want to try to get some idea of the underlying etiology. So when I think of heart failure, I often will think about whether or not it's reduced ejection fraction, mildly reduced ejection fraction, or preserved ejection fraction. And that not only will help with regards to the underlying diagnosis uh, and etiology of the heart failure, but it also tells you kind of what therapies one can consider. We know the most about heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction because we have such a large number of clinical trials that have kind of guided us, and we know that there are four pillars to treatment. On the echocardiogram, if the ejection fraction is less than 40%, it's pretty straightforward with what you should try to do. The tricky part is when you have a patient who has the mildly reduced ejection fraction, so 41 to 50%. It's tricky for two reasons. The first is we don't have as much robust data because many of the clinical trials kind of looked at ejection fractions that were much lower than 40%. But the second is because of the digit preference on echocardiography. So very rarely will you see an ejection fraction that says 43%. It's going to say 40 to 45% or 35 to 40%. It gives you a range because of that plus or minus 5% kind of error with, with interpreting the overall ejection fraction. The other thought is to look carefully at the structure of the heart. When we look at an echocardiogram, oftentimes we walk away with the actual LVEF for ejection fraction. But in reality, there's so much more to find out. So for instance, if the LV size is normal, in many cases, that would suggest that this was truly new onset heart failure, that structurally the heart hasn't remodeled all that much. And in my experience, I find that these patients are more likely to have some reversibility or improvement in their ejection fraction over time. 
if they have new onset heart failure, we should call it newly diagnosed because many times patients will be symptomatic for a while and they subtly can get worse. And they'll say, well, I'm getting older or, well, I'm gaining weight. I need to lose a little weight or I need to start exercising and go to the gym or it's my asthma, you know, or I have allergies and fill in the blank. There are a lot of reasons why someone may discount their fatigue and shortness of breath, classic symptoms of heart failure. And because of that, they may have been symptomatic for months before they actually realized that there was something wrong, there was something amiss. And they would go and see a doctor or a provider and actually get the diagnosis of heart failure. But someone could have had heart failure for months and could have had remodeling, unfortunately, and that LV size on that echocardiogram will be a lot larger. So that would tell me that this has been going on for longer than just a few weeks. The other consideration when looking at the echocardiogram is anything that would give you an idea that there's something else going on. So for instance, if I see someone who has significant left ventricular wall thickness, but they have no history of hypertension, and when you measured their blood pressure today, their blood pressure was normal, that would actually give me pause and say, something's amiss. They can't have, they're, they're not likely to have hypertensive-induced cardiomyopathy. So I'm looking for things like infiltrative disease, such as amyloidosis, or could they have an inherited condition such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? When you look at the thickness of the heart, you also want to look at, was it symmetrical or asymmetrical? Is it only in the bottom of the heart or the apex or on the septum? but it doesn't involve the lateral wall, or maybe there's right ventricular hypertrophy in addition to left ventricular hypertrophy. All of that would tell me something's amiss. Again, this is not just run-of-the-mill hypertensive cardiomyopathy. Oftentimes, we will group patients into kind of ischemic and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, and I think that's too simple because ischemic is one thing for the most part, coronary artery disease. And yes, we can say it could be a thrombus formation. You can have a thrombophilia that can be involved, clot that kind of embolized to one of the coronary arteries. But there are not that many etiologies that would fall into the ischemic cardiomyopathy category. And you have over 100 diagnoses for the non-ischemic. So I think that's too simplistic. However, uh, if you think about it, for patients with heart failure, 50% of them will have coronary artery disease as an etiology. So in my experience, unless it's clear that their risk for atherosclerosis or some coronary artery anomaly is relatively low, meaning you have a young, relatively young person with no risk factors, I would actually say that an ischemic valuation should be fairly standard. In the past, we used to go straight to angiography. Now you can certainly do stress testing with stress echo, but also kind of stress thallium or sestamibi and even PET scans to evaluate this. One of the things to consider, especially if you do radionuclide imaging, is something called balanced ischemia. So if you have ischemia, if you have left main disease and a right coronary artery, if you're not careful with the, with the nuclear scan, you may be kind of lulled into a false sense of safety and think that they don't have coronary artery disease. So if you see dilatation of the left ventricle as you're exercising or, or during the stress part, even if it looks like there's no ischemia because it's balanced ischemia, you should start thinking about a possible coronary artery disease as a etiology. Now with the improvement in cardiac CT scans, we can do CT angiography. And a lot of times 
unless you think that there's a a reason to do potential intervention for coronary artery disease, you can do a CT angiography as opposed to going straight to coronary angiography. The, the trade-off there is the amount of contrast and the resolution beyond the proximal segments of the coronary artery. There are a couple of other things that I would just highlight, and it's probably beyond the scope of this, but I think it's the art of the diagnosis. And that is, there are several things that would kind of make you think about special causes of of heart failure. If you see a large family history of heart failure, I would start thinking about inherited cardiomyopathy, especially if they have sudden death. So one of the questions that I often will ask is not just did anyone die suddenly, but I would say, was there anyone in your family who actually died unexpectedly? Because a lot of times when people die of a sudden cardiac death of a cardiac arrhythmia, the family is kind of told they died of a heart attack. And on the death certificate, sometimes they'll say myocardial infarction, even though there's no evidence that that's the case. So when I hear of a 29-year-old who died of a heart attack, I'm thinking of an inherited cardiomyopathy, which will start me thinking about things such as ARVC or lamin A mutation or some other genetic testing. And the other thing is when you see patients who come in with hoarseness in their voice, easy bruising, carpal tunnel syndrome, I start thinking of amyloidosis as well. And we start thinking also of the TTR amyloid, and there's an entire algorithm that one can follow to try to better understand that. The last thing that I would just mention, which is not that common, but it's not as rare as people think, and that's uh, sarcoid cardiomyopathy. It's amazing how many times I've had patients come in and I make the diagnosis and they've been followed by cardiologists for years. The reason that it's important to not miss this is because when you have sarcoid cardiomyopathy, if you don't treat it with steroids or any other like a methotrexate early on and aggressively, you may lose the window to actually have improvements in the ejection fraction. I find that when the EF drops below 30 to 35%, the probability of improvement is much lower. So my rule of thumb is if you see a patient who has conduction abnormalities, especially someone who has sinus node dysfunction at an early age, you should think about sarcoid. Because once again, sinus node dysfunction tends to be a disease of the older people. And if you see AV conduction disease or anything like that, I would consider doing a cardiac MRI or PET scan to look for sarcoidosis. Thank you for that very insightful answer, Dr. Lewis. I had one follow-up question. The guidelines really emphasize assessing patients for advanced disease and appropriately referring them to a heart failure specialist. Can you give us any insights from your experience about how to detect advanced disease and and when is the appropriate time to send a patient to a heart failure specialist? Absolutely. One of the toughest things that I, I deal with as a heart failure transplant cardiologist is when a patient is referred to me too late. When we transplant a heart, the heart's going to be fine for the most part, but the other organs are the ones that I worry about. So cardiac cirrhosis from chronic low flow or chronic passive congestion of the liver, fixed pulmonary hypertension from longstanding group two pulmonary hypertension from longstanding left-sided elevated filling pressures, patients with chronic kidney disease such that the probability of getting through an isolated heart transplant without uh, resulting in dialysis or needing a heart kidney uh, becomes a problem. 
and really cardiac cachexia and uh, frailty and failure to thrive. So my rule of thumb is it's best to refer early. Uh, and if you're uncertain, refer to uh, a transplant center for evaluation. What I often will do when I think a patient is premature is I'll say, I think you're doing a great job. You can um, be managed by your local cardiologist, but if these things happen, then come back to me. The things that should alert you to the fact that you may be sliding from stage C to stage D heart failure would be number one, if you have a person who's continually readmitted to the hospital and is not due to non-adherence. Number two, there's a drop in their blood pressure, right? You'll have people, remember about 75% of patients with heart failure have a history of hypertension. However, as a heart progresses, you may get, and your cardiac output starts dropping, you may have hypotension. Number three, kind of inability to tolerate GDMT. So if I could tolerate inhibitors of the renin-angiotensin system, and now I can't, that's a, that's a sign that I may be progressing. Four is progressive decrease in functional capacity. So I often will ask them, what were you able to do last year? And are you able to still do the same? And it's important to be purposeful about this. I remember a case of a patient who I asked a simple question instead of the mailbox is at the end of the, of the driveway. And I said, can you get your mail? And they said, yes, perfect. I said, okay, so you would think they can walk, you know, without shortness of breath. They said, sure. So you, you would say, okay, this person is doing well. But it turned out that this person put a chair halfway between their front door and their mailbox. And they would walk to the chair, sit, walk to the mailbox and walk back to the chair, sit, and then walk back to the house. So by doing that, they didn't have shortness of breath. So sometimes patients will change their habits in order to accommodate their worsening functional capacity. So you have to be very purposeful with the questions. If someone has progressive renal failure, liver failure, persistent elevated hyperbilirubinemia, progressive hyponatremia, all of these things would be a sign. And the other one, which people don't talk about a lot, is I've actually arrhythmias, especially ventricular arrhythmias. As you may know, if you get shocked from a defibrillator for any reason, your median life expectancy is about 1.6 to 1.7 years. Ventricular tachycardia and V-fib often are harbingers of progressive heart failure. So in fact, I just listed a patient for transplant who had VT storm, and I would not have done it without it. But my concern was this is a marker that this heart is not going to last that long. So if I wait until they're classically stage D heart failure, where they actually have end-stage functional limitations, I may have missed the window because many of these patients will die from pulseless electrical activity or persistent VT that generates to VF that's not resuscitatable. So all of these things are just a few signs that would suggest that they have more advanced diseases. Weight loss is another one. So if a patient has weight loss and they've never been able to lose weight and all of a sudden they're losing weight, I'm thinking of cardiac cachexia. So I tend to check their albumin as a marker. And then once again, confusion, anything that would suggest low flow should prompt you to refer for evaluation. Well, Dr. Lewis and Shiva, this has been a great discussion on the clinical manifestations and diagnosis of neonset heart failure. Thank you again for your time and all the knowledge you've shared with us today. Thank you so much.